0: Sorry, I've just—if I I sound a little bit um, flighty, uh, our next neighbours have been playing very loud music constantly for the last five days, and uh, we're in the old self isolation, and they're kind of like like to slam out the fucking uh, Radio One tunes, and it's like "Mm, (laughs) at least at least have something interesting.
1: Yeah, just maybe just send them some recommendations.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, so how does this work? Are we just, um, do you just start recording at some point? Is it, it's recording now, presumably?
1: It's recording now, but I will just edit out all the chat about that <laughs> <laughs> for me. Hello and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished, My name's Emma Anderson and for this programme I ask artists, writers and performers about creative projects that they never finished or that they never made public. The aim is to nosy around in the laptop corners and bottom drawers of my interviewees to discover fabulous work that wouldn't otherwise see the light of day. If you have an unfinished or unpublished project you'd like to discuss, you can email me on unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. My guest this week is David Spittle, who is a poet, filmmaker, and essayist. He was recently commissioned to direct and edit a documentary on Austrian poetry called Where Is Everyone Austria, which is now available on YouTube. David's first short film, Light Noise, was funded and broadcast by the BBC and is available to watch on iPlayer. His first full collection of poetry is entitled All Particles and Waves and was published by Black Herald Press earlier this year. This followed his poetry pamphlet entitled Box, which was released in 2018. He has also written three operas and in 2014 was commissioned by Bergen National Opera to write a song cycle which has since been performed internationally. David runs an online interview series called Light Glyphs with poets talking about film and filmmakers talking about poetry, including interviews with Guy Maddin, John Ashbery, Andrew Cutting, and Ian Sinclair. David holds a literature PhD on the poetry of John Ashbery and surrealism. You can find out more about his work at www.dspittle.com. And I have to say that we didn't get chance to discuss even a small portion of all those different things that David has done, but we did have an enjoyable, rambling and meandering conversation which I hope you will enjoy. I'm going to ask you, start asking you about your work now, if I may. Yeah, sure. to get some kind of radio 4 style interview questions in. Go
0: for
1: it. I want to talk about your unfinished projects. You sent me a little list of them, um, which sounds yeah. fascinating and a bit mysterious, I have to say. But I wanted first just to ask you about all the stuff that you have finished and have published one recent example of which was your first poetry collection called All Particles and Waves, which came out this year. How was launching it this year? Did you get it launched before lockdown or was it like a virtual thing?
0: Yeah, no, it was last minute uh, pre-lockdown moment. Um, It was in March and I was planning to go to quite a lot of places, and um, the press is based in France, Okay. so there was even the plan to do something in Paris, which would have been sweet, but alas, no. Um, So I did the Newcastle reading, I did that at Newbridge Books, and it was important to me to do it there and not say uh, necessarily the Lytton Phil or the uh, university or a pub or a bar or something, because I was quite keen to emphasise other arts uh, because I think my poetry is always kind of omnivorously <laughs> leached off other art forms. Um, I draw a lot of my motivation from from film mainly and from sound. A lot of noise, uh, noise artists and ambient stuff and I just really like the idea of kind of putting on an eclectic event. So I had um, a friend of mine who's in a, a, a noise act play um and I showed a couple of short films uh, one one was the short film I had with the BBC the other year so it was a really lovely chance to get that to have that as a sort of screening and then um had a couple of poets and myself and it was a really warm evening and it's one of those kind of things I look back on it now like some sort of lost idyll of pre-lockdown times where everyone <laughs> met up and it was a a really lovely crowd subsequent to that it's it's sort of strange because I haven't I, you know it's it's not a press that would be doing a lot of promotion uh, it's also people in France mm-hmm. so that's you know has its own practicalities to it and and um, I suppose I'm not hundred percent comfortable with a lot of the promotional uh, expectations now on artists to do certain things uh, online. I'm happy to do my own little bit, but also there are just like, I guess, as at any time, there are kind of coteries and little cliques of online cheerleading and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm part of that, but I also don't feel particularly upset by that because I think it's quite a snarky, Mm -hmm. prickly, billboarding sort of strange part of that world. Um, but it does beg the question: Who do you want to read your book? Because I mean, beyond like a couple of friends and all, all the rest of it, it's like, well, who is this for? How can I, how can I reach those people? So I decided it was for me, and I read it, and I called it a day.
1: <laughs> so when you said about the the online stuff, do you mean publishers uh, doing the snarking, or other artists, or other poets? Or... Um,
0: I I think I think there are two things going on. I think on one level. It's this sad reality of social media being an expected part of life, so that jobs mm. sort of require you to have it. And it, it works the same with arts. If you're not connected or you don't have necessarily the money to sustain you in certain ways, you, you're going to use it as a resource to reach out. But it's like getting into some sort of brambly tangle of tentacle nest of diminishing returns. It's just, it's, a, it's an advertising uh, cesspit. and (laughs) and it's just sad that um sometimes i think for people perhaps who, who feel as though they're trying to uh progress with an audience or with a purpose in their art that 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 is um what can come to eclipse a more kind of actual or grassroots community so i guess what i'm talking about is on a personal level where it, where it is the kind of um self-promotion that seems to be part and parcel of what you're expected to do and this uh is not only for say publishing but for employment you know around the humanities you you are demand there there is the demand or the kind of tacit uh agreement that you should have an online presence of sorts yeah. and i think it is a kind of it's a poison chalice um <laughs> but, approach with
1: caution yeah yeah
0: um and and then you know there's the whole uh prize culture and awards and all that sort of stuff which i think is something mm. that i just don't even approach partially you know you can say <laughs> from the outside objectively it could be like well it sounds like a very abitted retreat, embittered retreat. It's like, I don't approach it because nobody approaches me. They're not in... <laughs> um, and whilst that might be partially true, I will concede, um, it's also just it doesn't seem to fit with the kind of um, way in which I conceive of art and poetry. Um, I think that the stuff that is... By and large, some of the stuff that is awarded will, will, will be the stuff that's easier to agree on. And I think that mm. quite often interesting stuff is hard to agree on and takes a while to kind of grapple with. Really, uh, what I'd like to say in, in kind of conclusion is that once you come to that realisation that, you know, these things are limited or these things are slightly unhealthy and these things uh, are not going to give you the support you want and that perhaps they're actually even going to detrimentally try and um, turn you towards a different kind of writing or publishing, that... The next step is to disengage with that, and not to obsessively spend your time in in kind of wrestling critique with it or tension. Because I think that's another thing that you see is is the kind of artist or, or writer that feels as though they've been personally wronged by this system, and then mm-hmm. kind of it's it's a kind of bitter reality. Whereas rather than I suppose, pl- yeah, placing the focus on that inability to reconcile your art with some sort of external approval it's far far more rewarding if possible to just focus on where you can find that and to just go with that find your own path i suppose and um which might mean that you you like accept that you've got a very different audience that you perhaps expected or perhaps you it's not even so much about the audience uh, as it is about finding practitioners who are on the same wavelength and kind of sharing Mm -hmm. that correspondence or friendship so yeah i think I think those things have been really far far more important to me um and it was something I missed actually in academia uh, i i felt um, yeah. my i don't know like the passion that I had for poetry was something that I wanted to share or wanted to see embodied by others, and whilst absolutely there were people who were similarly driven it was hard to find um what i'd call role models because there were so many people who were uh, kind of neurotically upset with with yeah and it seemed to be like warnings all around and i i i was choosing instead to just be like okay not gonna deal with that just gonna bury my head Mm. in ashbury poetry and um enjoy (laughs) that instead until until time's up and that's kind of what i did which on one level kind of gave me less Uh, gave me fewer lifelines but uh, I think looking back I'm glad I did it because it meant that I just sort of made the most of the positive side of it which I loved which was basically spending lots of time lounging around with poetry and researching and I I got a couple of trips out of it I got to go to New York and meet Ashbury and that was irreplaceable as a kind of exciting creative experience I suppose.
1: I'm going to ask you about Ashbury in a second but just to come back to the book launch that you had yeah. you mentioned um you're talking about it being this really lovely community event and also that you used a mixture of different art forms so you're using film and music and I was looking a little bit on on your website about your description of all particles and waves and you wrote this really lovely comment about the poems drawing energy from a visual medium and that you were trying to transfer visual enchantment into out of and through language could you say a little bit more about how you respond to a visual medium in a written medium
0: yeah um thanks yeah uh, basically i think that I got really intoxicated with film <laughs> in the PhD I'd always liked film a lot um, but I got more time on the PhD and I kind of channeled my research into a kind of convenient avenue whereby I had to watch films and got very very much enamored with that world and it was actually through researching a particular director Guy Madden, and reading kind of interviews with him about how he saw cinema and kind of understanding that kind of, uh, that really, firstly, the the joy of amateurism. So amateurism in the sense of love, amour, and, and how that kind of appreciation for cinema, regardless of any notion of perfection, a kind of DIY enjoyment was something I took from him and something which he took from uh, Bunuel's early films with L'age d'Or and, and Chien Andalou, where there's this kind of anarchic, almost punk spirit of, maybe I don't know how to use the instruments, being the camera equipment, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to shoot and I'm going to make something mad. And that kind of vibrancy really excited me. And just then this idea of how to translate the visual medium in a, in a linguistic register, in, in language, rather than this kind of somewhat tiresome emphasis on a sort of limited notion of like ekphras- ekphrasis, um, which seems to be one mm. of those terms that academically people self-congratulate themselves over using too often it <laughs> seems to me that a lot of that writing is fairly kind of reductive of both mediums that it becomes a description of the film or it becomes a description of a piece or an exploration. Whereas what I'd be more interested in is the embodiment. How, how might you Mm. seek to find the experience of film and rather than describing it referentially, try and enact it in language, try to embody that atmosphere. I I don't know. There are so many uh, strange experiences around watching uh, film and visual art in general, and And Guy Madden really woke me up to a lot of that, and I think it was also his the way in which he was suggesting that interruption and accident were so important rather than having a kind of elitist sense of the right way to watch the film and the perfect conditions and the kind of almost austere reverence for certain things it was embracing. The um, difficulties, you know, like that you might be watching it late at night and falling in and out of sleep, that you might be watching a bad version of the film uh, in terms of like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a bad uh, print replication late at night on TV interrupted by adverts and how these kind of strange jostling interferences are also in their own way rewarding. And I found that really fascinating. And I found a lot of that echoed in the poetry of John Ashbery. And so I started connecting the two. And then towards the end of my um, PhD, they actually started collaborating, Guy Madden and John Ashby. And they'd been in correspondence for a while, but then like right towards the end, they started collaborating more. And it was like, oh, my God, wow, it's culminating in what and it kind of felt validating because I was like, oh, it was <laughs> connection. And there clearly was.
1: So you've mentioned that you were working on Ashbury there and also that you actually got to meet him. For anyone who doesn't know anything about him, could you maybe describe his poetry and also what it was like to meet someone whose work you'd been poring over for several years?
0: Yeah, uh, the weird thing is, ever since finishing the PhD, I've hardly read him. But basically, he was a poet who began publishing in the 50s. He was defined as being part of the New York School, which was a kind of critical term that was used and they playfully adopted and kind of it was almost done as a joke and then became this kind of critical term uh, used Mm -hmm. to refer to sort of like um, Frank O'Hara, James Schuyler, John Ashbery, Barbara Guest. Just around the time that poetry kind of took off in America in a sort of larger way with the beats, he was living in Europe and kind of soaking up the influences of surrealism and the writers around Surrealism. And it was specifically that. It was the idea not of the kind of hardcore Bretonian Surrealists, self declared as Surrealists, but those who were influenced by and kind of interestingly decaying at the edges of that movement without the same resolution. But yeah, and Ashby's poetry really sort of evolves into a poetry that's strangely, wistfully and humorously about as he would put put it the experience of experience so a kind of phenomenological Mm -hmm. idea of not what happens to you but how what happens to you is filtered and what that feels like it's really beautiful and and incredibly rich poetry it's it's like entering a kind of warm bath of clouds
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a lovely description (laughs) Did you get a bit starstruck when you met him or were you super cool?
0: Uh I I'm never super cool but um <laughs> I the day before I was really nervous um I remember walking through Times Square and a guy dressed as Spider-Man came up to me <laughs> and I was just like not now Spidey. Like, just not. The <laughs> um the day itself I was like really um eerily calm it was strange and we spent I guess about four hours or so in his flat just chatting and it was incredible I was I went to a a diner in the morning at the end of his street (laughs) and then there was an old old video store with a kind of in-house cat that was just wandering roaming the video shelves and and stuff and I, I spent some time in there and then went up to his flat and met him it was yeah it was really really wonderful
1: I feel as if that's a short story waiting to happen, <laughs> including the bit about Spider-Man. I think that's excellent.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the weird thing was as well that there was kind of a, almost like an academic pressure or duty to almost turn that meeting into an interview or something. Mm. And subsequently I've sort of tried maybe half-heartedly and, and without total conviction to um, approach magazines or magazines. After he died, a lot of magazines were kind of, doing things on him and I never really really wrote about it because it felt like a really friendly and personal thing and I didn't really want to Mm. use it in that way and I'm I'm kind of glad I didn't because I feel that approaching it in that way it meant that I got a far more friendly and less um, performed version of, of Ashby I think.
1: Well that ties in quite usefully to the theme of things being unpublished or private in the sense that you get something of a different value if you're doing it not to be published just
0: to keep it to yourself. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true.
1: Well, I'll move on then to asking you about your unfinished projects. You've sent me three different ones. Do you have a preference about which one we prioritise?
0: Well, to be honest, I sent you three, but there are are loads. Um, I I constantly (laughs) have unfinished projects because I tend to work with things simultaneously. And so I think having a sort of constant array of things that you can play around with means that each of the projects feeds the other one.
1: So I loved what you said about amateurism as, as love, as kind of, I think you said DIY enjoyment. So I was going to ask them, presumably, if you have all these different ideas going around, and you're doing it for the love of it, presumably, you don't care that much if your stuff or some ideas don't get finished and don't get Out into the world,
0: yeah. Um, I think if I'm being totally honest, it's hard not to care because I think you're so, yeah, when you begin writing, you're so kind of conditioned into the notion that it needs to find an end point and that you need to have some kind of moment of, I don't know, if it's self congratulation or, or, um, about the ego or whatever, but it's hard to get out of that. And I'd be lying if I said that. I didn't want these projects to find homes, but I do Mm. think that I've kind of acknowledged that if you are working like this, that necessarily some things won't land and, and some things will remain unfinished in a way that means they're like, they're never going to really find a final form. And I think certain, I think there are certain things that will remain unfinished, but can still find a home in that state. Mm. So yeah, like I do, I do like, I have worked on things where I'll realize that I'm driving it into the ground, and it's no, it no longer feels right for whatever intuitive reason, and that it's a lot of work, but it doesn't go anywhere. But it, but again, it feeds the next thing, and it feeds the next thing. So none of it is ever wasted. I don't think this idea of unfinished as waste or anything like that ever. I I can get these obsessive things where I'll, I'll be writing and writing, and it will be. I know that it's not good. And it'll be like I get into a, um, this kind of more neurotic state where it's almost like trying to fix a puzzle, where mm-hmm. the, you know, the only thing that is allowing the puzzle to be a puzzle is you like worrying at it and playing with it. And so it's never going to feel, feel resolved. I got over this pretty quickly. But I think before, before I really got massively into the more creative side of things, um like i've always written poetry since i was like a kid since i was six that's been something that i've always done but i think it was only when my phd that i then started trying to publish and stuff i think that there was there's that quite masculine uh, solemn, philosophical, and romanticism, which is like, no, I just shall retreat <laughs> like a Nietzschean hermit and live in my cave and create this market <laughs> even if it drives me insane. And that's just not sustainable, helpful, or, or particularly relevant to to create <laughs> a bit of worth. Um, or at least I've found it that way. I think I think more and more I need to remind myself to to get outside to do things because mm. you know, writing and creating often as wonderful as it is, it's a it's a retreat from living. It's a kind of it's part of it, but it's also, you know, you become absorbed in a state that's almost necessarily dislocated from things going on.
1: Well, I'm glad you're not in a cave. <laughs> that would be a shame. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean I, I am self-isolating at the moment, so it's this sort of of slightly, so slightly yeah. cave, it's, <laughs> it's not full on uh philosopher growing beard in cave. I've I've got the beard, <laughs> it's not the philosopher <laughs>
1: Okay, so what I'll do is I'll read out the three suggestions that you've given me for your <laughs> unfinished project, yeah. and then we can pick one. So, the three suggestions that you gave me were a novel that explores cinema history and Alzheimer's as a way of revisiting the life of your granddad yeah. through a series of strange dreams that explore an imagined cinema. Mm-hmm. The second one was a mad long poem <laughs> that explores evolution, wonder, aphids, and Atlantis, among other things. <laughs> and the third one. <laughs> was a film which will remain veiled with mystery because you're still in the process of composing ideas. Which one of those would you like to tell me about? I'll,
0: I'll tell you about them all really quickly. Uh, because I think the, the last one uh, was uh, hilarious tongue-in-cheek. It's not veiled in mystery because anyone gives a flying crap. It's um, veiled in mystery because actually I I came across the distinct feeling that it's unfinished in a way that i don't want to share and actually i think okay. that, um, that that's interesting because i know that one of your questions was like how do you feel about sharing things that are unfinished and yeah. sometimes absolutely fine and i gen- generally do not get umbilical about my ideas i don't feel particularly um uh, beholden to their importance or their vulnerability but i think sometimes when you feel like it's real um you've just got like the bud of an idea and you want to follow it, then you kind of don't want to share it, or at least no. how I feel. Or even if you're just not in that mind space. So the first one, the uh, first one about the grandfather and the Alzheimer's, that's all following on from my BBC film thing I did, yeah, which was digitising my grandfather's film reels, uh, which we discovered after his death. Uh, he had a series of 8 millimetre films that he was he was kind of an enthusiastic filmmaker in a kind of holiday home movie way sort of thing Um, I wanted to try and recombine or play around with those reels in order to create something that approximated some of the experiences that it seemed he went through with Alzheimer's before he died
1: is that the footage that's on your short film Light Noise?
0: Yes, yeah, it is.
1: Uh, I watched that. I was really, I was going to ask you where that footage came from.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, so it's actually, it's all my granddad's and the kids in that. It's like, that's my mum. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, no way. Um, yeah, and then this idea of turning it, I mean, its be, I, I was going to make more films about it, and I don't know whether I will, because I've still got more footage and everything. Um, and I, I did other footage as well. I was going to create another part to it. But at the moment, The more i think about it the more it's lending itself to prose and um i'm wanting to think about this connection between cinema history and family history the memory uh and the memory of cinema and how how uh, the the original kind of connection was that idea of like the parallel between celluloid decay and synaptic decay so how the plaques that build up in alzheimer's that, that kind of create this tangling decay of memory uh, being comparable to the the forms of celluloid decay in films that are left to kind of mould in in archives or under heat pressure or or, or whatever. And there were filmmakers who've kind of played with this beautifully, like Bill Morrison, who, who's made a whole film called Decasia, where, um, like a fantasia of decay, where he, he pieces together all these archive film stock images in a way that foregrounds the decaying cake, creates a kind of blooming hallucinatory character out of it. But yeah, no the more I've been thinking about it, the more I've just got interested in prose, and I think also because I feel like I've written a lot of poetry at the moment, most of which I know I've had my first collection out this year, but that collection was done for was was almost done for about three years previous to it being published, and then I've got sort of three or four other poetry collections lying around that are just kind of bubbling away. yeah, like noise, I just wanted to return to a, a sort of strange dream-like narrative of um, characters and real figures from film history and a kind of version of my granddad I don't know yeah that for some reason it just I, I just suddenly started thinking it needs to be in prose so I sort of started mm-hmm. writing that and that's something that I'm going to be trying to pursue the next one was a mad long poem about a <laughs> I've got like a whole list of <laughs> hilarious things that i've written down that i'm like this poem shall include deep sea animals daphnia a fossil of flight whatever that means evolution pharmaceuticals octavia paz encyclopedic esoterica considering cannibalism sunflowers brain coral the arcade <laughs> like walter benjamin's the arcade basically i kind of wanted I, I always it's kind of eyes bigger than your stomach syndrome i love the idea of an ambitious raggedy project that never gets finished so this kind of ties in quite neatly with the subject here these kind of life projects where you you get the feeling they're never going to be finished or they're created to not finish you know they're created in order that there is something always going on and i love that idea of just creating this kind of mad labyrinthine collection of something and the poem was kind of after writing a lot about um aspects of decay and disintegration and depression and uh, more sort of psychological things I wanted to try and get back in touch with a kind of enchantment that was more full of wonder than perhaps the claustrophobia of neurosis like I used to love the idea of evolution and fossils when I was really young and returning to that kind of joy so yeah I kind of wanted to create this mad compendium of bits of evolution mixed in with like I don't know, like uh, field notes on lichen, um, slime mold, and uh, weird Hollywood history. I don't know, just something a bit wacky.
1: So first off, I like the idea of creating something so that it won't be finished. Yeah, yeah, and also, I just when you were talking about it, I just have this image of one day you being this famous poet, and then future researchers having to go through your manuscripts in an archive, <laughs> <laughs> and then just finding like all these mental things about lichen
0: (laughs) i just love that i'm really in love with the idea of the sort of foolhardy attempt to contain everything (laughs) you know yeah you know you get it in the kind of whitman-esque kind of ecstatic song of myself style like mm. version of this but also just in these like these mad projects that are like Melville's Moby Dick, but you know it's searching it's kind of it's doomed to failure but it's some sort and and, and I think it's wrapped up again in in not not always because there are incredible examples of this by by women writers but I, I just think there's something about the kind of trappings of a certain kind of masculinity as well. that mm. is this kind of phallocentric conquest, which I find quite funny as well. Um, the, the You know, the, the kind of humour and the ridiculousness of that, of, of finding some sort of purpose in the tome. I, I think that's really entertaining and funny. And, and how how could you inhabit that in a way that was not simply masturbatory or if it was to kind of absolutely embrace that (laughs) in a way that (laughs) had humor and isn't actually like trying to do the these these are my tablets down from the mountain yeah it's um yeah so I don't know that that idea really entertains me and it's it's not really begun yet I've just got lots of books that I know that I want to plunder for it
1: (laughs) It reminds me a bit of so it's kind of a almost a mic take or a much more fun and self aware version of um, is it Casaubon or Casaubon in Middlemarch who's trying to do like yeah yeah the kind of like theory of everything or something yeah
0: yeah I I don't know there's just something I mean all particles and waves has the the impulse towards that without doing it in any way which is that yeah. conception of the quantum physics notion of waves and particles and this kind of finding everything in the the tiny and the debris of the world that contains the universe and all that sort of Blakey and infinity and a grain of sand stuff but um I think there's something just really just so silly about like trying yeah. to flog yourself into some kind of discovery and that uh, if you if you do that uh, in a way that is not simply unwittingly like this will be my world and everything and it will consume me but allow the kind of positives of that total immersion whilst keeping a sense of its um its ridiculousness um and the fact that we all of us generally are striving for some kind of meaning that we cannot ever arrive at because it's not static and it's not uh resolute but it is this kind of flux of finding i think turning that mm-hmm. into your methodology in the unfinished, in the incomplete, in the searching, is, is um, I think that way happiness lies. <laughs> like not trying to finish, not trying to arrive or kind of consolidate a vision with a manifesto or a statement, but recognizing it's the looking for that Uh, Which is the enrichment, and what what I love about that is that it's also the kind of uh, observation that's just as glib and naff and stupid as it is profound. Because it's like, it's it's you know, what do they say? It's like the journey, not the destination, kind of thing. You know, it's something that we all totally understand and know, but actually, you know, you don't always see it enacted totally by art.
1: Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the glib and the profound, because you you can say that it's about the journey, which is the sort of thing that people post on Instagram. But then you could also say that it's the Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill, right? Which is yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. a philosophical
0: point. So Yeah, totally. totally. Um, yeah. If you could get a cheerful Sisyphus, you know, <laughs> maybe that's, that, that's my madness. Maybe it's trying to find happiness in that. Or rather, happiness is the problem. You shouldn't be looking for that. <laughs> Just meaning or the meaningful is enough, I think. <laughs> The
1: final unfinished project that you've mentioned is your film, which you said is veiled in mystery. And you've also said that you want to keep it fairly private, but could you give us like a rough outline of what that what's what that is?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess it's coming out of partially collaborating with a friend of mine who's an amazing poet who I'd like to include him in the film, but I'm going I'm to keep, keep that all mystery okay. as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's partially... I guess like there's a there's a a short story by Clarice Lispector, the Brazilian writer, which is uh, incredible. Uh, basically, about a man who is living in sort of loneliness and some sort of kind of misery, and gets a dog for company. And instead of the dog providing that company the dog's sort of unwavering commitment to him, the unconditional love, it seems, of the dog unnerves him and makes him aware of his own craving to be accepted. Rather than being able to take that acceptance, it makes him almost more lonely Mm. because rather than feeling necessarily undeserving of it, all it does is remind him that that's what he wants. Um, She doesn't really say this in so many words, but it's like beautifully written into the text and that story and then what he ends up doing with the dog which involves burial is is really fascinating to me and I I kind of like was beginning to imagine ways of drawing on that story and then I was starting to think about the dog and and how um, the philosopher Diogenes who was uh, often referred to as the dog philosopher this kind of vagrant who created the term cosmopolitan before it meant sort of a sense of elite cosmopolitanism, the the idea of this uh, no allegiances but a person of the world, you know, yeah. and he was this kind of wandering, homeless, angry, transgressive philosopher, and that figure of the dog being kind of integral to his philosophy. And then I also saw this some um, amazing exhibition of Paula Rager's work. Mm-hmm. Who is uh, mm-hmm. an incredible painter, and she did these insanely troubling and grotesque and beautiful images of women kind of contorted in certain positions that, to, 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 that were meant to be canine and dog-like but they were very incredible for giving this kind of feminine strength that was not about a kind of conventional feminine femininity but a kind of primal power yeah. and those images found I, I found like really cinematic and very interesting and so I started to just get this sense of Uh, interesting dog thoughts and um, it's kind of mapping an idea in my head but that's kind of the direction of of it.
1: That sounds fascinating there's a lot of different things going on there.
0: Yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think that's yeah like often how things start off with me and then I realise that I need to funnel it down or change it or whatever.
1: (laughs) Well I had loads of other questions about finishing and publishing but actually what you said already is far more interesting so (laughs) I think I've just got one final question which is what was the poetry that you were writing when you were six years old?
0: (laughs) I wrote a poem about a gecko um, (laughs) I wrote it on a napkin when I was at a restaurant with my parents and it was about a gecko on a leaf and then um, how the leaf was on a tree and the tree was in a forest and the forest and it was that kind of zooming out so expansion again Um, but I think yeah ever since like a really early age I was I was my grandfather not the one who had alzheimer's but my dad's dad used to read me stories um and he would invent the stories and pretend to sorry that was an email going off maybe um uh yeah he used to invent the stories uh and and pretend to turn the page on his forehead (laughs) and this kind of storytelling at an early age i think was really inspiring and i loved it and i i really loved greek myths when i was a child as i think a lot of young people can do, yeah. uh, you know, like versions of Greek myths. And I remember seeing the uh, film Jason and the Argonauts with Ray Harryhausen's animation of the skeletons and everything, and being like, "Oh my god, it's a great film. This is you And I also remember thinking when I saw Jason, I like, I was like, "My god, if I could just grow a beard, <laughs> I know, I'd, be a, I know, I'd be a hero. I, I would literally be a hero." <laughs> Turns out there's more to it than that, but uh, I still have the beer. Oh, you
1: never know. It's a good starting point.
0: Yeah, I like to think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> have you ever heard what a gecko sounds like? Purely coincidentally, I Googled this the other day no what what like it's quite something you should google it wow it's really odd okay.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah a, a friend of mine had like leopard geckos i know that's like a kind of common go-to gecko pet scenario but like i no, i've never heard a gecko i i know like tortoises when when they mate make the worst noises i mean both i have seen that
1: video yeah.
0: <laughs> hilarious and unnerving in equal measure <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, maybe I'll end the podcast just for the sound of a gecko.
0: <laughs> that'd be amazing. I think that would be appropriate. <laughs> yes. yes, I would love
1: that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. That was that was really fascinating to hear more about what you've been doing.
0: No worries, it was fun. It was really fun, and thanks for thinking of me to do it. It's really lovely of you, and also just nice to chat. Do, do you enjoy doing this? I mean, like it's. Oh,
1: I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah it's really fun it's yeah, it's a wonderful idea as well, I think the unfinished thing.